Let me start again, okay? So here's the phrase. I don't care about the Israelites. So much of the Bible is about the ancient Israelites. Let me tell you why I don't care about the ancient Israelites. I am not an ancient Israelite. Ancient? That's coming. Some of you may think it's already arrived. My children, for example. But I'm not an ancient Israelite. I really don't care about circumcision, about the Philistines. I don't care about Assyria. I don't care about temple worship. I am not an ancient Israelite. And so, so often when we come to church, it's about the ancient Israelites. And maybe you share some of that disconnect that I experience sometimes. Because you come, and you come with your concerns about your health and about your job and about your family. Maybe you come with spiritual concerns. Am I really a Christian? Given what happened this last week, maybe I'm on my way to hell and not on my way to the other place. So you're concerned about all those kinds of things, and then so often when we come to church, it's about the ancient Israelites. I don't care about the ancient Israelites. I give you permission not to care about the ancient Israelites. Because we're not, are we? In case you hadn't noticed, and in case you're not convinced, can I tell you, I haven't got it here this morning, I have a smartphone. That means I'm not an ancient Israelite. That's the first reason I don't care about the ancient Israelites. I'm not one of them. The other thing is that they're dead. In fact, not just recently dead. It's not like being concerned about things that happened in the last generation or even the generation before that or even the generation before that. They've been dead for a very, very long time. So I don't care about the ancient Israelites. Which is a problem, isn't it? Because so much of the Bible is about the ancient Israelites. So we come to church with all our concerns and we hear about the ancient Israelites and what are we supposed to do with it? Now let me say that part of the problem that we have with the ancient Israelites lies with people like me. Because some of us like history and so we're interested in the ancient Israelites and we like digging around and things like that. And some of us like me who preach You know, we talk about all these ancient things. And so the reason that you feel a disconnect is my fault. But nevertheless, the Bible is a great deal about ancient Israelites. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, this morning I want to tell you one reason why you should be concerned about the ancient Israelites. Here it is. Because they're just like us. In other words, when we read those stories about ancient Israel and the ups and downs and their relationship with God and their relationship with their neighbors and their relationship with each other, above all, when we read about the spiritual struggles that they have and the experiences they have with God, if you strip away all the cultural and historical differences You and I are looking at a mirror image of ourselves. They are us. And here's the thing. 
When we look at the history of Israel and their experiences and God's dealings with them and their dealings with God, we come to see that our situation is actually a lot, lot worse than most of us imagine. That our condition as human beings is a much bigger mess than we like to think. Let's take two things that are a real issue in our world. Number one is politics. We long, don't we, for a political system and a government and a rule that would bring about justice and bring about human flourishing, that would bring about economic prosperity for all, that wouldn't be predisposed towards the rich and the powerful as opposed to the poor and oppressed. Most of us want that kind of rule, don't we? And we search for that. It is one of the great issues of our age. How can we have justice? How can we have fair government? How can we have effective government? It is a great issue. It, it has been a great issue throughout all of human history. But today is today. And it's an issue in Australia. It's an issue in our world. It's that political issue. Let's take another great issue of our time. Let's take the state of nations and their relationship with each other. And let's take the state of all of us in relation to natural resources and the climate and the environment. It's a great issue of our time, isn't it? How can we get nations to act peaceably towards each other? How can we deal with the environmental issues and have hope for the future? Those are, as I say, great issues of our age. In some ways, they've always been an issue. But there are current developments like globalization and technology that it seems to me make these issues particularly acute for us. And then over all of that, overarching all of those things, is the spiritual dimension. Because even if we could find the right system of government... And even if we could find some way of getting nations to work together for at least a time, and even if we could deal with global warming, the heart of the problem lies with us, doesn't it? Issues to do with greed and self-centeredness. How can we deal with those spiritual issues? So overarching all of those other issues, there is that spiritual dimension of how do we relate to God, and therefore, how do we relate to each other? Those are the great issues of our age. And we ought to be concerned about them. Some of you may be thinking, well, these are just too big. I have enough trouble trying to get to work in the morning and get my children out and do the things that they need to do. I have enough trouble sorting out my finances. I have enough trouble dealing with the, the minutiae of my life, which is so overwhelming for me. I haven't got time to deal with those things, to think about those kinds of things. And in any case, what difference can I make? So some of you may be saying, what's this got to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with us, doesn't it? The external world impinges on us. Technological change affects all of us. What happens in governments affects us. And although we may be relatively secure at the moment in terms of our external borders, the disharmony and the disruption out there may one day come to us. And issues of inequality and injustice 
are here in Australia. It's not just out there. And there are issues for our children as well. What kind of world is, are our children going to grow up into? Where's our hope? Is it technology that's going to deal with it? Is that what we hope? Do we hope that we're going to discover some kind of way of dealing with climate change and so that will solve that one and then we'll just muddle through and maybe things will just get better because that's what things do in terms of our relationships with one another and the way the governments run? Where's our hope? We need to be concerned. And I want to say very particularly, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, these ought to be issues that concern us because they bring us to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and our hope as Christians and how we are to live in the world. And this is where Israel comes in and is so vital for our understanding because you see, Israel had a divine charge to address both the political and that across nations aspect of human existence. Not just, not just something that they made up, not, not a, a national mandate, not even an international mandate. God gave them a divine, a divine instruction, a divine commission to be the people who brought in a political system that would bring about justice and equality and fairness and deal with those issues and at the same time deal with our issues in terms of national and international hope and our relationship with the entire globe. And those two things center on two people in the Bible. And they're both ancient Israelites, sort of. One of them is King David, Old Testament, and the other one is Abraham. Let's take David first of all. God makes a promise to David. David has secured the throne. God has brought him to power in Israel. He's united the people. And he's been installed in Jerusalem as the king, and he is God's king. And one day, the prophet Nathan comes to him, and you can read about this sometime later in 2 Samuel 7. Prophet Nathan comes to him and says, I've got a message from God for you. He says, I'm going to establish your house, that is, your dynasty. And one day there's a son going to come and he will establish a kingdom that will last forever and it will be a kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness. It will be a kingdom that spreads out and has impact across the world. Through this person, I will rule as if I were personally present ruling. This will be my kingdom. One day that's going to come. And Israel is the custodian of that promise, the promise of political change that will bring about what we call the kingdom of God. That is entrusted to Israel. We live in a remarkably disordered world. 
In fact, it's worse than disordered, isn't it? It is profoundly and dangerously dysfunctional. And the promise that goes back to David, that's given to David, is that one day a ruler will come who will establish a rule that will do away with the disorder across the globe. It will be God's government. That's the first one. The second one is Abraham. Back in the early chapters of Genesis, the Lord speaks to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have lots of descendants. And through you, that is through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is, through you, there's going to be blessing on people, whatever their nationality. Through you, nations will come together in peace and harmony. There'll be a reconciliation not only between nations, but between people and the planet. Because the promise to Abraham is also about land. It's about stuff. It's about dealing with that disorder between us as human beings and how we treat the planet. And it will reestablish hope in terms of a relationship with God himself. The promise to Abraham is about restoring human beings into a right relationship with the entire creation and with each other. Those two hopes centered on those two people, Israel is custodian to those. It is through their descendants, that is through the people of Israel, that those two things will come about. But for that to happen, it will involve their active involvement to bring them about. That is faithfulness to their commission. And what happens? What happens is they prove faithless and they fail. Now here's the thing. Remember, Israel is just like us. Remember that to them is given the divine commission to bring what really matters for us as individuals, in nations and for individuals. And Israel can't do it. Do you get that? If Israel can't do it, with all the advantages, with all God's work amongst them, with all the deliverance that he brings, with all the resources that he brings, if they can't do it, we can't either. There is no hope in us. Have a look with you at Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. It's the famous story about the birth of Jesus. Chapter 1 is about a genealogy. Do you notice how it begins? Chapter 1, page 965. Matthew's going to tell us the story about Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus the Messiah. But do you notice what he says? He says, Jesus the Messiah. Do you notice the next bit? Son of David. Son of Abraham. Old Testament bells should start to ring, shouldn't they? He then goes on to talk about the line leading up to Israel, and it's a line that shows us there's no hope in Israel. And then we get to chapter 2. 
A message comes to the king in Jerusalem at the time. Remember, king, rule, Jerusalem. His name is Herod. He is, in so many ways, an illegitimate king. He's not a true Israelite. And he's only interested in his own power and his prestige. And we read in those first two verses that these messengers come from these, we sometimes call them the wise men. They're actually magi, they're astrologers, which is interesting. And they come having heard that there's a king being born in Israel who is king of the Jews. Ring bells? You remember 2 Samuel 7? A son will be born to you, David. And when he comes, he will bring in an everlasting kingdom. That's where the hope is. And these people from the east have heard that there is a king. Who could this king be? Could this be the one? Would you notice the reaction in the court? In verse 3. It says this, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Isn't that interesting? Here they are, the custodians of the hope for the world, that one day a king will come who will bring in the kingdom of God. And they are disturbed. Why? Because it threatens Herod's power and prestige. That's why. Which is why Herod, having done some research in verse 8, sends them off and says, ostensibly, when you find him, come and bring him back ostensibly so that he can give his allegiance to this king. Because after all, he is not the real king. But of course, he intends no such thing. And we have that terrible story in chapter 2 of the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem when he finds that the wise men have gone back and haven't told him where Jesus was. Remember the hope of the world. The hope for the kingdom lies with these people. And you go to the top, to where the king is, and to the place of power, and what do you find? It is morally and spiritually bankrupt and it's not just it's not just at the top it's at every single level by the way I'm I don't know whether you've read Lord of the Rings do you know Lord of the Rings some of you like Lord of the Rings those of you who don't just switch off for a moment okay just take a nap I, I'm reminded of Lord of the Rings there's um hope in many ways in Lord of the Ring lies in the in the kingdom of Gondor. And there's no king in Gondor, and instead there's a steward who rules, waiting for the king to come. But the steward of Gondor, Denethor, has been corrupted by the evil of Sauron. It has reached into the very heart of the power structures of Gondor and produced a moral and spiritual absence it's a bit like that in these opening chapters of Matthew as we see the state of God's people which means the state of the hope of the world and as I say it's not just in the courts it's also the whole of Jerusalem as well and the whole of the nation 
In chapter 3 and verse 7, in the passage that Matt read to us, John the Baptist appears and he calls the people to repent. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come along. And do you notice how he then lays into them? Verse 7 of chapter 3 on page 967. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said, I'm so pleased you're here. Lovely to have you with us. Never thought I'd get you here. Hey, Pharisees, because you're such great people. You love the law of God. You're concerned about spiritual things. You're scrupulous in your spiritual observance. And if people see you coming here, that's going to attract other people. It's wonderful to have you here. And you Sadducees, you control the temple. And, and, and you're some of the leading and most powerful figures in the nation. And you're here. This is marvelous. The advertising campaign worked. It normally doesn't. But, but delighted to have you here. He doesn't, does he? You might have expected him to. What does he say? He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to come to flee from the coming wrath? And then notice the next bit, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You are morally and spiritually bankrupt. And in many ways, these are the best of people. The Pharisees are the most scrupulous in their religious observance. And John says that they're vipers. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume, he says. And notice the word Abraham appears again. Don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Doesn't work like that. The whole nation is morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so John lays into this scathing denunciation. What's this got to do with us? Israel is us. Israel represents the best of us. Israel represents the best hope because God has charged them with saving the world. If they can't do it, we can't. There's no system that we can develop. There's no hope in democracy or communism or anything in between. There is no hope in our political leaders. It's not that we shouldn't respect them. It's not that we shouldn't act as good citizens. But our hope does not lie there. There's no hope for the nations of this world to be found in peace projects, in war, in international agreements. There is no hope for the nations. There's no hope for our planet ultimately in terms of our abilities to control and develop technology. And there's no hope for us individually. Because at the heart of all of this is the human heart. And our hearts are in a mess. If Israel can't do it, then we can't either. Do you believe that? 
Did you believe that the only hope for the world lies elsewhere? Do you believe that the only hope for your neighbors and your friends and your family does not lie in their ability to get a good job and live in Willoughby? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that the only hope for you does not lie in any of those things either or in your family or your friends or your relationship, good as those things are? It lies somewhere else. Do you believe that? We say we do. But again, to quote from Lord of the Rings, handsome is as handsome does. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, isn't it? Politically, economically, and socially, we will always tend towards Herod. And morally and spiritually, we will always tend towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So where's hope to be found? Well, notice again how Matthew opens. Jesus, the Messiah, that is the King, who is son of David and son of Abraham. The hope for the world in terms of politics, in terms of justice, lies with Jesus. The hope for nations lies with Jesus, and notice how extensive this is. In chapter 2 and verse 13, interesting, it's ironic, isn't it? God's king turns up and has to flee to Egypt. Have a look, would you? Because of what Herod is doing, because he's threatened to kill all the children of of that age, the age of Jesus, and in fact goes about and does that. An angel of the Lord, verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. We're not ancient Israelites, but if you were an ancient Israelite, you'd say, where? That's the place of slavery. God rescued his people from Egypt. Isn't it ironic? When the king comes in the person of Jesus, he ends up in Egypt. Such is the rottenness of God's people. And then in verse 15, there's a quotation from the Old Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son, which in the Old Testament is a reference to Israel. is isn't to Jesus. But you see what Matthew's doing here? He is saying... Jesus is everything Israel was called to be. Out of Israel, I've called my son. The divine mandate given to Jesus, to to Israel, is now taken upon Jesus. Hope lies with him. And then at the baptism, at the end of Jesus' baptism, in verse 17 of chapter 3, the voice from heaven, the voice of God, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Why, why does God say, my son? It could be because the king was known as my son. Israel, as we've seen, was known as my son. God's son. But there's another figure in the Bible who is known as son of God. And that goes back to Genesis. When human beings are made in the image of God. Adam. My son. 
men and women made to reflect who God is, given a status above everything else, to reflect God's rule and God's reign. And here we go back to Adam. Jesus is the new human being, if you like, who's come to restore humanity. And notice, he doesn't come above us, but with us. So notice, he is baptized, and John doesn't understand it. When he came to be baptized, verse 13, John tried, and then verse 14, John tried to deter him and saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He identifies with you and me. He doesn't come above us, but with us as one of us. He's Israel. He represents a new humanity and hope for human beings. And then there's one last son who's mentioned in these verses. Go back, would you, to chapter 1. Joseph's very perturbed because he's engaged to Mary and then discovers she's pregnant and it wasn't his fault. And he has uh, the... um, Uh, he has a message from God. The angel of the Lord appears, verse 20, and says, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. She will give birth to a son. And then verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, that's Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. In Isaiah chapter 6, where that's first mentioned, it's in the context of hope. The Assyrians are at the gates virtually and Ahaz the king is not sure what's going to happen and he's despairing. And Isaiah comes to him and says, let me give you a sign from the Lord, a sign of hope. There's a young woman and she's going to bear a child. And she's going to to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, don't be afraid. God is with us. But here, Matthew applies that to Jesus See, Jesus is God with us. He is one of us who identifies with us, but he is God with us. That's where hope lies. This is why hope lies with Jesus. Hope for the nations, political hope, social hope, economic hope. Hope above all in terms of our disordered hearts, in terms of our relationship with God. So, what should we do? Well, I hope that your hope is in Christ. We have to live in this world. Using smartphones is fine. But I hope your hope isn't in your smartphone or whatever the next technological advance is or the next medical advance or the next government or the next international treaty. I hope your hope is in Christ because all other hopes for human beings are hopeless hopes. And we are called, if we're followers of Jesus, to live out that hope because the kingdom has broken in in the person of Jesus.
and we need to live it out individually in our marriages as well, you know, amongst our families, with our friends, at work, in the priorities that we have for our life and above all in terms of our community together as the people of God. And we'll be looking later on in Matthew at what that might look like. And we need to speak it out. There are a lot of voices out there saying, this is the way, try this, do that. Or the good old Australian, she'll be right. People need to hear about hope in Jesus. And they'll hear it from us. They're not going to get it from the media, are they? So I hope your hope is in Christ. And I want to encourage all of us to be people who live as members of the kingdom by the way that we live and what we say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we pray that you will write it deeply in our hearts so that we will live it out. Father, we pray that we might all know what that hope is that's to be found in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of praise. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Let's stand.